David um, uh, is a and Yael is, uh, I don't know, a, a monster or something. I, I just lied and I besmirched your reputation and I'm not a nice guy. <laughs> Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 1067 FM every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our website is consumerchoiceradio.com. There you can listen to all the previous interviews, episodes, and everything else we've been cooking up here for the last year. I am one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria. It's hot, it's balmy, and uh, we're enjoying the weather. And I'm on the mic here with my colleague, David Clement, who is uh, also melting under the sun in Toronto, Ontario. David, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. A lot to, lot to talk about. Uh, I mean, the DNC kicked off this week, which was weird because it was all virtual. Uh, Steve Bannon has been charged for being the fraudster that he is, so... Oh, I, I do want to talk about that one. Round that's, of, that's good. I, I just read the yeah, article. Yeah, round of yeah. snaps for locking that guy up. Um, yeah. I oh, mean, okay. So you're, you're, you're for locking people up there, David. Is that right? Well, if you're, if you're going to cheat people out of millions of dollars okay. under false pretenses, yes. then I don't mind if they throw the Bernie Madoff bucket him. That's cool. I can, I'm down with that. All right. So there you go, for a, a um, former Goldman Sachs guy thrown in jail again. <laughs> we, we should also probably uh, preface that that comment and this story. Uh, I'll, I'll try and give a description for the audience here real quick. But essentially, there was a GoFundMe account created, which is a crowdfunding account created to fund the wall. Um, and that was the big news. Everyone was, was covering this. It's like, oh, look at these people who are throwing money away to get Trump to build a wall. Yeah. It was... He wasn't getting enough money through Congress. Yeah, so they were like, oh, we're going to raise $25 million. And I forget what the total amount that they raised was, but it was a considerable amount. And then after the fact, everyone was like, oh, wait, where did the money go? And I mean, these these four gentlemen, one including Steve Bannon, are innocent until proven guilty. However, the indictment does look pretty bad that they ended up actually pocketing a considerable amount of this money. And so you had the campaigners to build the wall, seek for private funds to build the wall, and then pay for vacations and home renovations and a boat and all sorts of others. Yeah, so uh, according to the indictment, I think this is from Washington Post, according to the indictment, uh, Kolfage, I think is his name, is one of the guys who organized the campaign, received more than $350,000 from money donated to We Build the Wall, which he then used to pay for home renovations, payments toward a boat, a luxury SUV, a golf cart, jewelry, cosmetic surgery, personal tax payments, and credit card debt. Wow. I mean, the personal tax payments is the thing that, that is like the, just the chef's kiss, the icing on the cake. So he owned the IRS money. So he raised a bunch of private funds to build a wall and then siphon that money off to pay Uncle Sam. <laughs> I remember there was a, a friend of mine a couple of years ago, like, you know, you see GoFundMes every now and then of people raising money for maybe it's like, you know, paying for someone's funeral if, if someone didn't have much money or paying yes. for someone's college. And then you really saw a lot of people started trying to raise money for their own college. Yes. And I remember a friend of mine was just like, 
dissing it. And he says, man, pay for your own life. <laughs> don't, don't ask for all these people to pay for your life. You know, if it's, if it's like a, a very bad, tragic circumstance, you know, that happens a lot with, with people who of course. Um, someone might pass away in their family, you'll raise money, but not for raising money so you can go to school and party at college. Yeah, Come on. yeah. Can you guys help me raise 45 grand so I can go to Arizona State and crush Natty Lights for four years poolside, please? Thanks. <laughs> And now sit on a Zoom call and do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a very good program. We've got two guests on for the hour. Uh, for one, we have economics professor Walter Block, uh, who's coming to us from Nolens, uh, Louisiana. Uh, he's um, obviously someone who is very well-versed in the economic knowledge of what's happening with all these bailouts and money, and he's got uh, a couple things to say on lawsuits against Trump, um, a lot of things on what's happening with the defund police movement and much more. And then we have Ross Marchand, who is from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance and Young Voices. And we're going to talk all things postal conspiracy and postal reform. Um, so these are, are coming up here in a bit. Awesome segments. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with those. Yes, yes, yes. Good time. So let's uh, let's tee that first interview up, Jamie. Let's uh, Let's go to Walter Block. And uh, yeah, play that clip. Well, I survive all the fights in the darkness, trouble sparks. They tell me home is where the heart is, dear departed. I shed tattoo tears that couldn't sleep good for multiple years. Witness peers, cats, gunshots, nobody cares. Seen the politicians' banners, they'd rather see us locked in chains. Please explain why they can't stand us. Is there a way for me to change? Or am I just a victim of things I did to maintain? I need a place to rest my head with the little bit of homeboys that remain. Because all the Rest there. Is there a spot for us to grow if you find it? Right Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. One half of your host here, Yael Ososki, joined as always by David Clement. And we have a special guest on the program. We're speaking with Professor Walter Block. Uh, he's currently the endowed chair, the E-Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the School of Business at Loyola University in New Orleans, and he's also a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Alabama. Professor Block, thanks so much for coming to Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. It's a delight. Wonderful. And of course, I would not uh, have you on the program and we wouldn't have you here as someone who is well-versed in economics without asking your opinion on, goodness, everything that's happening with um, <laughs> the corona and you've got uh, bailouts in the news. I know that's something that you've you've written about a lot in your career and you've definitely given some good perspective on. What is your quick take on kind of what's happening now with uh, some of the trillions of dollars being thrown around in, in Washington, D.C.? Well, uh, I think this will lead to more economic mis misallocation. Uh, the, the interest rates will be lower than they otherwise would be, which will lead to longer term investments, which are unsustainable, which will create a business cycle, <clears throat> which is the genesis of business cycles in the first place. And also, they're, they're taking away from rich people and giving to poor people, which um, is uh, a problem for the development of the economy because rich people develop the economy more than poor people do. So uh, there are lots of problems as to what's going on here. And um, uh, I'm not a big fan of what they're doing. I think that um, old people such as myself, I'm almost 80, are uh, pretty vulnerable. 
and uh, we should isolate ourselves if we want, but people of your age, you guys look like you're in the 20s or 30s, and um, uh, there's no reason uh, for you to be um, uh, quarantined or isolated and ruining the economy thereby. So I, I think that lots of mistakes are being made um, all around the world, well, with the exception maybe of Sweden, <laughs> uh, which, which is doing pretty well in this regard. Yeah, I think that's uh, one thing that is you know, always helpful in many circumstances is, you know, we do have some small experiments able to see what's happening in uh, Sweden versus the United Kingdom versus the US and Canada and everything else. It gives us kind of a, at least some kind of difference and something else to study. Uh, one other kind of big topic that that's looming, um, you know, apart from what's happening with all these bills that's being thrown around in the trillions is uh, we obviously have the election. Uh, we have that coming up in November. A lot of people are already starting to get their ballots and it might be, you know, mailing in to vote or anything else like that. Um, you know, in, in terms of a, a quick take, is there, have you seen any good economic topics that have been discussed so far in sort of the, the presidential battle, um, anything that you might be uh, more passionate about uh, than in other years? Well, I'm sort of a fan of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I think he's done um, A minus, B plus, which is pretty good. <laughs> In terms of um, <clears throat> reducing regulation and reducing taxes, and um, uh, he's a bit anti-union, which I think is also good, and uh, he, he's done a pretty good job. And I, you know, this whole thing about the mail-in ballot, I, I fear that the Democrats will steal the election uh, from him. Uh, I think he, if if it was a fair election, I think he would uh, win every every state in the union and the only place he'd lose in would be Washington DC and maybe not even there mainly because um, uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter are you know just ruining cities and most people don't like it even black people don't much like uh, having their houses um, uh, ripped down and, and um, uh, created arson and all sorts of mayhem and Donald is saying look I'll send in the the federal people and, and they'll stop this and then the Democratic mayors and the Democratic governors are saying no 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 uh, you know you're ruining things well you know in Portland and in Seattle they've had these riots for 60 80 days or 70 days or somewhere in a row and uh, you know and, and then the summer of love that they were gonna have in uh, chop in in uh, Seattle I mean those people uh, those are very liberal states. Those are um, uh, blue states. And uh, I think those people are, you know, entirely sick and tired of uh, having their lives interfered with and being beaten up and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, people are being killed. Uh, it's just mayhem. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think Donald will be uh, doing pretty well if there were a fair election. Yeah, you raise you raise a good point. Because, um, I mean, there there has been some polling on this where, when asked, African-American communities don't necessarily agree with the the mantra of defund the police. Uh, Riyal and I have talked about that on, on separate shows in terms of what that actually means and the difference between having no police and, and what their actual role is in society. But I do think you raise a good point on how riots and property damage will ultimately, uh, if it's framed in an, in an electoral way, would certainly help Donald Trump. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter make the argument that destroying property isn't violence. Um, I'd love to hear your take on that. That seems to be a very popular talking point with the people who are defending, um, what I, let's say, the riots rather than the protests, because they're two separate groups. They're very different. One is very peaceful and 
uh, and are just simply marching down streets. The other is looting targets and destroying homes and things like that. Um, but what's your take on the argument that, that destroying property isn't violence? Well, uh, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I'm in academia and we're the cesspool of intellectual activity. You know, uh, in academia, it's violence if you say something with which the politically correct people disagree. For example, if you say he instead of he and she, they'll say that's violence. And on the other hand, if you uh, firebomb a, a building, uh, that's not violence. I mean, you know, only in academia could you have uh, a, a thing like that. It, it's just crazy. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, people, you know, black people are now telling the BLM to, you know, go away and leave us alone and stop uh, ruining our, um, our property. Uh, what was it? Somebody got fired for saying buildings matter also. And, and if you say that white lives matter or blue lives, that is the cops uh, matter, um, uh, you're somehow creating violence. Look, you know, there are, yes, there are bad cops. The guy shouldn't have had his knee on, on, on the guy's neck, although I understand he died from other causes, some sort of drug or whatever. But that, that was a mistake, and, you know, he's a bad apple. And uh, it's well-known uh, economic fact that uh, non-intact families and three-quarters of black kids are now brought up without fathers. Uh, it's highly correlated with all sorts of negative things like uh, being in jail, being shot, uh, uh, leaving school, getting into drugs, all sorts of things like that. And then you might ask, well, why, why, uh, why did the black family break up in the first place? And the answer to that is your and my favorite institution, namely the government, with its um, gargantuan welfare system. Look, uh, there is this um, uh, thing, uh, if you put a frog in boiling water, <clears throat> its metabolism is such that it'll jump right out. Whereas if you put a frog in cold water and, and heat it up slowly, its metabolism is such it can't make that distinction and it just stays there and gets um, boiled alive. Well, slavery was like uh, boiling water for uh, the black community. Uh, it didn't ruin their family. Yes, it ruined their family during slavery, but in the aftermath of slavery, uh, the families got together. Uh, my research shows in 19, 1890, 1900, 1910, the black and the white family were just about as intact. The white family is 1% better, but you know that's not really much. Then what happened is LBJ in 1965 boosted welfare uh, to a gigantic amount and made a, uh, a pregnant girl an offer much better than the father of her child. And, and that started the, the dissolution of the black family, not just the black family, the white family too. Uh, one quarter of white kids are now brought up in non-intact families. So I, I think a lot of the cause of these problems is uh, is due to government and if government would just um if if our society would embrace <clears throat> laissez-faire capitalism we'd all be a lot better off and one one thing i wanted to uh, kind of pivot to because i think it's it's definitely part of the discussion and i think there are many people who are skeptics of centralized power um, giving more power to certain government institutions. And there was for, you know, a little bit of time over the summer, this you know, mantra of defend the uh, defund the police, not defend, sorry, defund the police, and a, a kind of broader skepticism of, of government power. I mean, you definitely saw it in Portland and uh, whether or not the, uh, let's say, federal officers who were brought in to protect buildings. And you saw this kind of skepticism and, and 
you know, for many people who maybe don't align with either of the parties, but are generally more skeptical of centralized institutions, you know, there was a kind of, of, of a different uh, sort of groundswell. And it felt as if we were in a different position where people were now questioning uh, how much power we should be giving to different government institutions. It seems it just centered on the police and local police forces. Um, but do you think overall, you know, in the, in the next six months, this will lead to a bit more skepticism? Or do you think people are just kind of uh, digging their heels in the more partisan arguments? Well, I think it will lead to skepticism. You know, before we discussed polls, and it looks like uh, uh, Biden is ahead of uh, Donald Trump in the polls, but a lot of people <clears throat> are afraid to, uh, <clears throat> when they're asked uh, by a pollster, they're afraid to say that they, they favor Donald because, you know, th this is politically incorrect. And, and you have uh, this sort of virus, not a, a COVID virus, but an intellectual virus started out with the universities and got into the New York Times. I mean, they had Tom Cotton uh, wrote a uh, an op-ed saying that the police, should, uh, the federal, uh, the soldiers should be brought in if the police lose their uh, ability to stop riots. And and uh, the editors who uh, supported this uh, got fired or transferred or whatever. Uh, you know, this is, I mean, uh, these polls, part of the reason that the polls is not so much to report on what is likely to happen, but to encourage the Democrats because uh, the leftists are uh, very powerful among the pollsters, among uh, Hollywood, among uh, the pulpit, among the academia. So uh, the average guy, you, you stick a microphone in front of his face and say, who do you favor? And he knows that there are a bunch of lefties. He's going to say, oh, well, uh, Biden. Uh, so I, I think um, Donald is going to win if it's a fair election. And these polls are, are just uh, erroneous. So that's just the shy Tory effect. You know, people are not willing in polls to say who they really will vote for. And, and you think will be totally surprised come. I don't know if it's going to be Election Day or like the week after Election Day, but one of these would be very surprised. Well, maybe six months after Election Day, if, if they do it with um, the post office. I mean, you know, I, that's a famous aphorism. I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Well, the post office is sort of uh, one of the weakest elements of government. You know, you go to FedEx if you want something, if you want to be uh, uh, something reliable. And they're going to rely on that for, for something very important as to who the next president is. I mean, this is just crazy. And uh, shift, shifting gears, I mean, still in regards to, to Trump, um, one thing that I know you've been discussing, and I'd love for you to discuss with our audience, is Trump's various lawsuits that are going on. And I'll, I'll let you uh, hold the floor here in terms of what is going on and what your take is, because I think this is probably something that a lot of people in the grand scheme of everything that's going on, COVID and mail-in voting and all the other controversies have probably not really picked up on. So what is going on? What, what is Trump insinuating with, some, with various lawsuits here? Well, uh, he is very litigious, which is okay, I guess. Uh, and he is being victimized. I mean, uh, when, when he got into power in 2016, uh, the very next day, the, the major media were just on his case, um, with the exception of the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and maybe uh, three or four others that you might mention, 99.9% .9 of the media is, is against him, and he doesn't much like it. He feels uh, properly so uh, mistreated. But uh, he is uh, trying to sue them for libel. And uh, as a libertarian, I don't really believe in libel laws, although there are exceptions. I once sued the New York Times, but that's a whole other issue uh, for libel. Um, I don't believe in that because what a libel law is saying is that 
you're besmirching my reputation and uh, and you're taking away my property and therefore you owe me money. You say Walter Block is a jerk or an idiot or something like that. And, and now people believe you and, and people won't hire me and I'll make less money and all. So you ruin my reputation. And my reputation is very important to me, more important than my shoes. And yet, or my car, if you stole my shoes or my car, you know, I could sue you and, and get the money. So I should be able to sue you for ruining my reputation. However, uh, there's something different about reputation versus shoes, because what does my reputation consist of? My reputation consists of what you guys, Yael and, and David, think of me. Well, do I own your thoughts? No. I mean, if anyone owns your thoughts, you own your thoughts. I don't own them. So uh, if you guys ruin my reputation, you ruin something that I don't own. And it's a paradox because I work hard for my reputation. The better my reputation is, the more uh, money I'll make. A lot of companies are sold and half of the value of the company is, is the stock and half of it is the goodwill. And the goodwill is really a reputation. So you'd think that if you besmirch someone's reputation, there should be a case in law against you. But uh, if you look at it clearly, reputations consist of the thoughts of other people, and you, the victim, don't own their thoughts, so you really shouldn't be able to be suing them for um, uh, ruining your reputation. Uh, and another point I make is he's very miffed. He's very unhappy that um, a lot of the newspapers are against him. Well, you know, newspapers are things... Uh, where you can enter without much uh, regulation. If you want to be a doctor, you have to go through all sorts of conniptions to become a doctor. If you want to become a hair braider, uh, you have to do all sorts of things. But you know, you guys started a, a newspaper. Uh, anyone, uh, whether it's electronic newspaper or a physical newspaper, there are very few uh, entry restrictions uh, on, on that. So I think what Donald should do if he doesn't like this is start his own newspaper, which is unlikely, although he's got enough money to start a newspaper or a radio show or whatever. Well, that was always the rumor if he had lost the uh, the election that he was going to start you know, Trump TV or the Trump Network or something. And, and who knows, that might be still a plan. Yeah. Uh, more, more seriously, what this leads to is um, uh, Google and uh, tweet, uh, tweet, Twitter, whatever, and, and um, uh, uh, Apple and all these other places, which are, you know, uh, very much like Goodyear. Take the Goodyear case where you can't wear a MAGA hat and you can't say white lives matter. You can't say blue lives matter. You can say black lives matter. Uh, and, and if you wear a MAGA hat, the, the, you'll be fired. Uh, the electronic media is very, very biased against conservatives and libertarians. And I think what should happen, instead of saying that they're guilty of um, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, stopping free speech, it, it's, their, uh, it's their property. They can say who says what on their property. Um, other people, libertarians and conservatives, should start an alternative. And there are the MeWe and a few others that are now starting up. And if they coalesce, instead of Googling something, we can MeWe it or whatever. And now we'll have two uh, bifurcations, a left one and a right one. And uh, I don't think this is good. It would be much better you know, if Wikipedia weren't um, uh, biased as the way they are. Uh, you know, you want to have encyclopedias and dictionaries that, that everyone consults, but if but if the left has taken over the dictionaries and, and the encyclopedias, well, then the other side should set up counter uh, groups instead of saying that, you know, you, you're guilty of, you know, stopping free speech. So just to go back one, one, one step there uh, in terms of talking about libel laws and reputation, I think you raise a good point that like, 
reputation is is not something that's owned in the traditional sense. Um, it's very much in the minds of others. But how do you how do you draw the line between libel and slander or 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 deceptive comments? Is there any distinction, or 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 is or do you lump them kind of together? Oh, I lump them together. I think uh, okay. technically slander is speech and libel is written, but you know the distinction between what you write and what you say uh, verbally is very unimportant. So I, I don't see that there's much of a difference there. The the difference is when you lie uh, versus tell the truth. You know, I, I David, you're now wearing a white hat. That's not a lie. But if I say you you're wearing a blue hat, that it's it's a lie. Well, should I be stopped from telling uh, untruths that you're wearing a blue hat or that two plus two is five? Well, you know, you're not wearing a blue hat. That's a false statement. And two plus two is five is wrong. Should I be sued for that? No. Uh, you have no obligation to tell the truth unless, unless there's a contract. Now, look, I'm a professor at Loyola University, and uh, I have at least an implicit contract to tell the truth about economics, at least as I understand it. And if I start saying two plus two is five and telling that to my students, then I'm violating my contract with Loyola. But uh, if I do it in, in economic, uh, uh, economic terms, but if I just go out on the street and say two plus two is five and David is wearing a blue hat, I shouldn't be able to be sued just because I'm telling a lie. Um, uh, at least according to libertarian legal theory, um, uh, the only thing you're not permitted to do is to in initiate violence against people or threaten violence, uh, murder, rape, theft, and, and uh, you know, arson, um, uh, violence against uh, property. But there's no um, obligation to tell the truth. So, you know, that's an interesting point. I'm now working on defending the, uh, the undefendable three, and I think I'll stick in the wire. I, I never thought of that. So I thank you guys for helping me uh, write this um, uh, defending the undefendable three. There's, I won't say there's nothing wrong with lying. There is. I mean, truth is better. Truth will make you free and all. But, but the point uh, of this book, Defending the Undefendable, is what should the law be? Should the law stop you if you lie? No. Uh, you know, uh, fiction uh, is a lie in a sense. You know, they say a dragon uh, did this. Well, there are no dragons. So uh, lying should be defended, uh, 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 even if it hurts reputations. Uh, David um, uh, is a pedophile, and, and Yael is, I don't know, a, a monster or something. I, I just lied, and I besmirched your reputation, and I'm not a nice guy. <laughs> I, well, you know, I'm not doing this seriously, but if I did it seriously, uh, I'm not a nice guy. But should I go to jail for that? Should I be made to pay you for rep uh, uh, reparations or, you know, payment for, for ruining your reputation? No, because you don't own your reputation. And by the way, another paradox is that your reputation will be safer in a regime where anything goes, where we have free speech. Because right now, if I say something, people about you guys, your rotten kids, uh, people are going to start saying, well, the, where the smoke, this fire, maybe Walter is exaggerating, but, the, but Yael and David must be bums because Walter said so. Whereas if there was full free speech and everyone was saying all sorts of crap about everybody, none of it would would harm anyone. So you've got all sorts of paradoxes in this uh, libel situation. We're speaking yes, with uh, Professor Walter Block here on Consumer Choice Radio, The Big Talker, 1067 FM. I did want to point um, our viewers and listeners uh, to some of your books, uh, Professor Block, including Defending the Undefendable, as you mentioned. So I just wanted to make sure you got a book plug in there too. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. Great. Yeah. So um, on on that note, in terms of 
One question that I did have for you, um, and it is a bit of a critical one, because I know that part of your support originally was for Donald Trump on the grounds of his foreign policy. Do you think that he's really lived up to the the spirit of of, let's say, Ron Paul or the old Rand Paul in terms of how he treats foreign interventionism? Or do you think he's largely extended the Obama era policies in terms of interventionism abroad? Well, you know, the economist, uh, here's a joke. I have to tell, announce a joke. <laughs> I can't tell a joke to save my, my, myself. So uh, the economist was asked, uh, how is your wife? And the answer came, compared to what? Compared to who? Well, what do I think of Donald Trump's foreign policy? Well, compared to who? Yeah. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, Donald Trump is no Ron Paul. Donald Trump is no Rand Paul. Uh, I grant you that. But he has instincts. You know, uh, you know, he says, we've been in Afghanistan 17 years. What are we doing there? And, and then all the neocons jump down his throat. And he says, well, you know, what are we doing in Germany? What are we doing in Korea? Let them pay for it and let's reduce the number of uh, soldiers we have there. And again, they jump down his throat. So he has some sort of good instincts. Uh, so he's way better than Obama, who didn't have these instincts at all. Uh, but he, he hires neocons. He should hire uh, Ron Paul, who is now not in office, and let Ron Paul be his uh, secretary of defense or foreign minister or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, bring all the troops home. Now, Donald won't do that. He's, but look, Donald is, he's not a, he's no, um, He's no Murray Rothbard either on, on economics. He's a protectionist. He, he, yes, he lowered taxes, but he should have lowered them more. Yes, he reduced regulation, but he should have reduced them more. Yes, he's he trying to uh, reduce uh, and have a better foreign policy. He should have done better. I agree. Uh, he, but, but, you know, getting back to the joke, uh, compared to who, I had to compare him with Hillary in 2016 or 2015, well, Donald is way better on foreign policy than Hillary. I mean, Hillary would be starting to bomb all sorts of people, I think. And, and uh, at least he's got some sort of vague of, um, foreign policy, um, um, uh, non-interventionist um, uh, principles that are submerged, like his economic freedom is submerged. But compared to who? Compared to Biden? Well, you know, I don't even know if Biden is going to be uh, on the ballot in, in November because he's, uh, you know, getting a little senile. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think that, you know, in a couple of weeks, um, Biden is going to pull out of it or be pulled out of it. And they're going to have a backroom uh, uh, convention to figure out who the president candidate will be. And maybe it'll be Bernie or, or uh, Pocahontas. I don't know. Or maybe Yang Gang. We'll see. That, that'd be David's wish. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks so much, Professor Block. Um, obviously, we're going to link to all of your uh, websites and things uh, in our show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience that you're working on or writing or, or other things that we can look forward to? Well, I'm doing Defending 3 right now, and I urge people to come to Loyola and study with me. It's not just me. I have uh, three free enterprise colleagues in our economics department. We're the only one where you have all four of us, 100% are free market um, uh, libertarian uh, Austrian economists. So come on down to Loyola. The water is fine. 
Wonderful. So that's a, it's a grand invitation. Go down to Nolens and uh, enjoy some great uh, economics courses. So thank you so much, Professor Block, and I uh, hope to have you again on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This life of mine. I cried times I once contemplated suicide and would have tried, but when I held that now, all I could see was my mama's eyes. No one knows my struggle. They only see the trouble. Not knowing it's hard to carry on when no one loves you. Picture me inside the misery of poverty. No man alive has ever witnessed struggle. I survive, praying hard for better days, promise to hold on. Me and my dogs ain't have a choice but to roll on. We found a finally spot to kick it. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. A wide-ranging interview with Walter Block. Certainly an interesting, uh, interesting gentleman. Um, moving from, from Trump, I mean, kind of perfect segue, actually, talking about Trump and <laughs> The election to now Trump and the Postal Service, which real quick, real quick, I think Walter Block is probably the most pro-Trump person that we have had on the program thus far. Do you think I'm wrong? No, that's fair. Yeah, that's he's yeah. certainly the most pro-Trump. I, I am not pro-Trump, um, but he is certainly more pro-Trump than I think anyone we've had. Nobody asked you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I that, that was um for me it's it's strange. You don't often hear that from economics professors, you know that they they would prefer a particular candidate. Usually, you know, if they're really deep in the profession, you know, they're they're going to cast shade on all sides, but uh, sure, it seems sure. seems he's bat, he's batting for the R team on this. And one. yeah, and in many instances that's part of part of our gig is is it's always important to talk to I mean just as we would talk to Block about Republican politics and Donald Trump and whether or not he's better. Um, we'll talk to Democrats. We'll talk to libertarians. Uh, really, kind of embrace that open forum. Very cool. Yes, and that does lead us to our next interview uh, with Ross Marchand. He is from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. We talk all things postal conspiracy, postal reform. Uh, he's actually one of the premier writers on this topic. If you've read anything on postal reform, you've probably have read one of Ross's pieces. Um, so we'll go ahead and ask Jamie to roll the clip. Will someone please call the surgeon who can crack my ribs and repair this broken heart that sure deserted for better company. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. We are with a special guest here now on the program. We thought, you know, there's a lot of scandal in the news. There's a lot of conspiracy in the news. And there's one man that I know we can count on to hear about the USPS. We're talking with Ross Marchand. Uh, Ross Marchand is a senior contributor to Young Voices and vice president of policy for the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. How are you doing there, Ross? I'm doing good. Great to be on your show. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, we have plenty of questions, but I just got to ask, you've been on the, the Postal Service reform game here for a while. Um, I think you've been one of the, the, the sole voice, voices in the country. So I, I think it's interesting to talk to you at this moment. Uh, tell us, you know, what's the beef? What's, what's going on here? Um, and what is postal reform? And uh, maybe a bit later, we can talk about the conspiracies that have been thrown around here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm super oh, excited sure. to hear to hear that part to know if Donald Trump is in fact stealing your mailbox. Oh, because yeah. that's that's all the rage right he's now. He's personally coming. He's he's stealing your mailbox. He's putting it in Mar-a-Lago. He's just decking out Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh man. So first first of all, postal reform. What does it mean? Well, first we have to understand the problems of the post office of the postal service. Now look. You have an agency, 
the federal government. And it used to be uh, predicated and based on a sound business model where you had mail in and mail out. But now over the past, let's say 15 to 20 years, you've had the rise of something known as email, digital communications. And not surprisingly, as a result, largely, you see mail volume dropping, let's say 3 billion pieces a year on average, just for the past 10 years. So that right there creates a huge business model failing. But, and this is, riddle me this one, guys, okay. As you see this declining mail volume, costs, and especially transportation costs and network costs are continuing to go up. So what's going on here? And that is a central question that postal reform efforts have to answer. Yeah, you raised, I was just gonna jump in there in terms of those costs. And I, I mean, I could never, never really fathom the costs and I started to read up because obviously we're interviewing you um, and a hilarious quote from Rand Paul came out where they about whether they need to bail out the uh, the postal service and he straight up said he's like well we could just put the money on my front lawn and light it on fire it would be about the same <laughs> yeah, pretty much it's the same intended effect <laughs> 25 billion here 25 billion there get the kerosene you're good to go and just have a huge bonfire get some marshmallows out and it'll be a great time well, it's better than his ads where he's he's got the chainsaw through the whatever the, the Federal Register or something. Uh, the tax code, yeah. On on that part, and uh, one thing I wanted to ask Ross is the the number that's figured that's kind of thrown around and and the the beginning of the conspiracy. It begins with this idea that the postal service is required by law uh, back in two thousand six to pre-fund its pension obligations. So, what is that about? What is that amount? And, and is that the cause of of the fiscal issues at the post office? Oh no, not the pre-funding discussion. I'll try to make this um, not totally boring, but it's still going to be mostly boring. So in 2006, you had Congress, and they got together under the Bush administration, and they said, look, we need to make sure that with the rise of email and all these changes, the Postal Service has enough money to provide for some of these retirement health benefits. So let's put the Postal Service on an aggressive pre-funding schedule where they have to put a lot of money up front to provide for their employees' retirement expenses. People say, and the media often says, 75 years in advance it's nowhere near that. It's three or four decades in advance. But what you may not have heard is that since the end of 2016 or so, they don't have to do that aggressive pre-funding schedule anymore. They've switched to something that's more along the lines of a gradual write-off system. In the finance world, and I had to look up the pronunciation for this when I first read up on it, it's called amortization. They gradually write off the retirement expenses over a 40-year period now. So the whole argument, if, if you ever hear, oh, aggressive pre-funding schedule, this is why the Postal Service is losing so much money, they would, they would turn a profit otherwise, it is horse manure, and especially so since the uh, past three or four years, because they can write off all the costs over a nice, long, gradual period of time. And so what about, what about prices? Because that is, and, and I bring this up because I think back to a really great Jerry Seinfeld bit where he talks about the Postal Service and he, in his Jerry Seinfeld way, he's like, can you really believe that a 
that a that a postal service based on licking and a random number of pennies for stamps is struggling to survive. And then he talks about the postmaster general freaking out, being like, we need to raise the price of the stamp. How do we raise the price? Uh, from my understanding, there are limitations on what the post office can do in terms of prices. They can't touch their prices beyond inflation. Is that accurate? And could a change mm -hmm. in the price structure maybe help them be less of a money pit? Yeah, sure. Usually there's uh, a lot more restrictions about what we call dominant market products. And that's like my dear old granny sends a letter to me. This actually happens multiple times a year. It's, it's not just my birthday and, and, and holidays and whatnot. This is, um, this is more strictly regulated, but I will tell you this. Um, while it is usually limited to inflation, there are certain um, exigent circumstances where you could have bodies like the Postal Regulatory Commission sign off on a temporary emergency increase if there is a compelling need, um, if, there, if there's a sudden uh, change in fortunes for postal finances, for example. Um, that could totally happen. That has happened over the past decade. Um, in general, the rule of thumb is along the lines of inflation. However, when it comes to packages, I mean, that's a whole nother ball game. And USPS has had wide discretion in setting package prices. Um, and in my humble opinion, underpricing packages relative to how much it costs to deliver them. You, we are on Consumer Choice Radio and the Big Talker speaking with Ross Marchand. I have, um, I guess, related to that point, it's, it's the, the big elephant in the room is uh, Amazon. And uh, this is a, it's a strange world in which Trump has been um, very early on, you know, very very critical of the relationship between Amazon and the post office and saying that they're not paying enough. They got a sweetheart deal. Uh, what's the kind of background on this? And, and is Amazon responsible for a sweetheart deal or is this something that is helping prop up USPS? Yeah, so two quick components here. Number one, Amazon has its own day of the week. Because, look, the Postal Service, you normally don't see the mail truck come on Sundays, but there is one giant exception to that, and that is Amazon delivery. So they signed this deal, um, I believe it was in 2012 or 2013, uh, providing that Amazon, only with Amazon, will they deliver to customers on Sunday. But it's also, it gets back to this earlier problem that I discussed about the underpricing of packages relative to cost. So Amazon has a lot of package volume vis-a-vis -vis the Postal Service, but it's also, I mean, the numbers just don't add up. And the problem is we don't know the full extent of, let's say, like the loss per package, okay? Uh, Donald Trump claims to know, but th there's a lot of stuff that Trump claims that he doesn't really know. The truth of the matter is no one except maybe the Postmaster General and, and, and some smart people inside the USPS know how much this arrangement, this underpricing is, is costing per package because the Postal Service is more secretive than the CIA when it comes to showing their homework and releasing methodology. It, all these reports, it, it's like a thick sludge of, of, of black ink. You just, you can't, you can't get any, where's the information? You can't get the info. Yeah, we need a, a many different FOIAs of every type and, and probably so much. You probably need a congressional hearing uh, thankfully, which we're supposed to have either today or tomorrow or something like that. Um, and that gets us to this congressional hearing. 
Um, I was scrolling down my Twitter feed. And by the way, if you would like to follow Ross, you can at Ross A. Marchand. You can find him there and we'll link to everything in our show notes. I was scrolling down my Twitter feed and all of a sudden I saw videos and photos of mailboxes being taken away. And I heard from a few celebrities that some of the people taking them away might have had MAGA hats on. Is there any truth to this, Ross? <laughs> well, look, I mean, people are liable to do all sorts of crazy things. Not from what I've heard. Most of these reports of, of, um, of collection boxes being taken away, sorting machines being taken away, all that stuff's been going on for years. The Postal Service takes at least 2,000 collection boxes out of circulation each and every year. Um, and this is this has continued and, and sped up a little bit under DeJoy, but now he's rolling back those changes and probably won't do any additional removals. But the point is, if you see a picture that looks scary, it's probably not all that scary and it's not that interesting. Um, but there are some good pictures out there and I see it in these like Washington Post articles, for example, and I think, okay, I can understand why they chose those pictures, but it's not as alarming as it looks. Well, and I saw, I saw one and it was like a truck full of these drop boxes and people were going hysterical, but I, I think whoever it was who did the research, it was like a refurbisher who buys the, the unused postal boxes and like turns them into art. <laughs> so here he is driving on the highway and people think that he's been, he is an agent of Donald Trump sent to destroy the post office to stop mail-in voting. Meanwhile, he's just some artsy guy who actually turns it into something cool. Um, and on, on that note of the election, I mean, there's a lot of questions about fraud. I think that Donald Trump's claims about fraud for mail-in voting are, are silly and not accurate. Um, but there are questions of capacity. What is your take on the argument in terms of capacity? Is the post office nimble enough to handle whatever the influx is if, if in theory, everyone was voting by mail? It would be a tiny, tiny uptick, very, very small. We're talking about less than 2% if all this election mail is treated as first-class mail in terms of that volume that the USPS would have to deal with. Now, look, I don't think that the vast majority of people are going to vote by mail. That's a matter of personal choice. And, and the whole claims about fraud, I'm totally overblown. It, it's comparable, if not less fraudulent than just than good old-fashioned, just going to the ballot box. Right. Um, but if everyone wants to do that or the vast majority of people want to do that, USPS absolutely has that capacity. Um, they've delivered far more mail before than this, what this influx would amount to. So it was really just, I mean, it is a large effort, but it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think it's like upwards of, you know, billions of pieces of mail a year. And I think whatever, whatever they're able to do daily is, is you know, come on. I think there'd be plenty covered. Right. I, I have voted much like Donald Trump, you know, uh, by mail in the past, absentee, you know, living outside of Europe of, of the U.S. and um, various states. And I think a lot of college students, it's much the same, right? You you have your your home address back home, and you can't go to the polling place, so you have to send an absentee. It's like normal business. I think the big deal now is it's not just about getting the ballots there, but it's also how are these supposed to be counted? Because I think the New York election that just happened, the primary one, I think. It was weeks before there was a result because it took so long to count it. I don't think it was a mail problem. It seemed like it was more a counting problem. Right. And you see this stuff, um, you, you do see delays sometimes, but when it comes to the big 
um, banner presidential elections, you do see the USPS in previous cycles making any and all effort to prioritize um, returning election mail from voters far more than they would even first class mail. Um, and by the way, this is why it's typically hand sorted. They want to separate it out from all the other mail and say, okay, this is the pile we need to focus on first. And by the way, it's really funny because it is typically hand sorted and all this alarmism about all the sorting machines being shuttered and taking away. Um, people say, oh, this is a part of the conspiracy to kneecap the postal service and steal the election. Guys, ballots are typically hand sorted. And if you took two seconds to look that up um, in, in a recent Washington Post article, we would not be having this discussion. No doubt. I, I, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's passed that uh, feels like a little bit like what happened with Russia uh, the past couple of years. So I guess we, we've moved on to a new conspiracy. And, and on, that, on, on the, the question of the Postal Service, one thing that I, I, I find interesting is we often, I mean, I have a lot of respect for people like Mayor Pete, and he will frame this and be like, well, we shouldn't talk about how much the Postal Service loses because it's a service. Uh, in the context of it, it being a public service, do you buy that argument at all, or is it like is so? I, I guess the old world view is the postal service is this like institution in America that ensures that everyone can get mail and that prices are set low and it's not going to disproportionately harm low income people. Has that argument to defend the postal service been? completely eroded by the existence of private competition and or digital space? Or is, does some of that argument still maybe hold some weight? I mean, it absolutely is a service and it is a straight up agency of the federal government. We're not asking the Postal Service to post these obscene profits and have like three or four or 5% profit margins. We're just asking to reasonably cover costs. Now, if the Postal Service covered all of its costs on paper, I mean, in reality, it would still be probably not as, uh, not as lucrative or, or, or not as, um, not as uh, meeting costs as much as its private competitors because the Postal Service already gets a lot of implied uh, taxpayer advantages and subsidies. Um, so for example, not having to pay corporate tax, they do pay corporate tax technically, but then it goes back into a fund to benefit them. So because we recognize as a service, it does have all of these benefits, all these tax benefits, um, low interest loans from the treasury, um, the whole nine yards, but we just want it after all of that to cover costs. I don't think that's too much to ask. And the Postal Service is absolutely capable of that. And they have done that in recent memory before transportation costs have skyrocketed. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. There's one uh, that relates to another question about the USPS's monopoly. Um, there's a, a story that, that goes around about Lysander Spooner, the philosopher, anarchist philosopher who started his own mail company in 1844, the American Letter Mail Company to compete against the USPS. And it uh, seems he was run out of town. Uh, apparently the US, and that's a, a strange thing about the USPS is, yeah. all, you know, postal services are a part of the constitution. Um, but is there a way that, you know, we can have some kind of good competition to the USPS? Is that something that would ever be allowed or sort of what is your view on the, the monopoly of the postal service? Well, first of all, um, I probably own more postal apparel in terms of like t-shirts and sweatshirts than pretty much any other postal policy expert in DC or across the country. Um, and my next um, step here is to try to get um, Spooner's um, 
American Letter Mail Company. I want to get that branded T-shirt, and I'm assured it actually does exist. So I'm in the process now of trying to research and procure that. Um, but look, I mean, they jealously guard their monopoly. You don't have to go back to 1850 to see that. I think in the 70s or 80s, they sued or they threatened to sue the Girl Scouts for putting <laughs> promotional flyers um, in people's mailboxes. So yes, they are very jealous um, about their monopoly. And look, what we could see um, in the, in the uh, medium to long-term future is attempts to maybe increase some competition, kind of like how the German post office and how Royal Mail over in the UK does it, um, without privatizing or without, um, you know, just completely handing it over to private um, organizations. There is a happy medium here. We can modestly increase competition and we can modestly uh, roll back that monopoly without going whole hog privatization. And so you mentioned that fight with the Girl Scouts because they were delivering things. Uh, it makes me think of a Canadian example, and I'm interested to tap into your knowledge here to see if there's anything similar in the, in the United States. The Canadian Postal Service, Canada Post, which operates basically on the same uh, flawed model, um, had workers who attempted to block or would not deliver certain pieces of mail that they thought were objectionable. Um, in one case, it was in relation yeah. to pro-life literature. The mo most recent um, strange example was uh, new subscribers to the Epic or Epoch Times, the, the, um, the newspaper outlet that covers, uh, from a very dissident point of view, what goes on in China. Uh, has that happened in the U.S.? Do you have the union fighting back about what's appropriate to deliver in the mail, or do they have more of a kind of hands off and Chinese wall, this. David, just say Chinese yeah. wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Chinese. <laughs> um, I don't think so in recent memory. Uh, this definitely happened in um, at least World War One. Um, there was a law barring um, uh, treasonous material from being mailed or something like that, a, a very dubious constitutionality to say the least. Um, however, there are weird rules and restrictions like not being allowed to ship alcohol um, and obviously, I mean, hey, that gets in the way of a good time, even if it's not straight up trying uh, to tell people what to think or what to read. Yeah, that, that's true. I know um, there, there's been, in uh, Snowden's book, he talked about a lot of different ways that people would communicate and talk. And he does say that, you know, there were, are parts of the Postal Service that were protected for a long time. I think the Patriot Act has probably put a lot of that stuff into question. Same with, you know, what do you check out at the public library? Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. But um, one thing that I know the, the sort of left-wing um, economic populists are very adamant about, and you do see in different parts of Europe, is to have different services provided by the bank, uh, sorry, the postal service, like a bank or, uh, you know, lending services. I don't know what else they've been clamoring for, but uh, is that something that would be legitimate for US to PS to take on? Would it be too far of their mandate? Is it just expanding their monopoly too much? What do you think about these kind of uh, moves? You know, there have been these calls and a lot of it is theoretical and they say, oh, imagine, oh, it's very, imaginative okay it's oh you walk into the post office and, and you deposit a check or something like that wouldn't that be great think about how easy and convenient and wonderful that is first of all let's look at usps finances they're woefully inadequate in managing their own finances let alone the finances of other people 
Um, but we also really don't have to speculate that much about the Postal Service getting into um, financial services because they already provide money orders. You could walk into a post office um, and buy a money order, but if you look at the cost coverage for these products, they report that annually, um, they don't bring in a lot of money per money order to the Postal Service. And I believe in 2017, they actually lost money on money orders as a part of an overall um, downward trend in cost coverage. So if it's not really working out for money orders, why would it work out in the larger scheme of things um, in terms of postal banking? It doesn't, the numbers don't really add up. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just something that you, you kind of hear every now and then, because I think there's now a, mm. a, uh, a, a grand romanticization of, of the Postal Service, and it's uh, taking part now at the Democratic um, you know, nominating process. That's all they're talking about this week is, you know, I've, I've only plugged in a little bit, but they're talking about how glorious USPS is, how it's amazing, an American institution we have to protect, and of course, Donald Trump <laughs> wants to dismantle it, you know, A to Z. Yeah. Oh, man. There's so much. There's so much. Curious question for you. How does, or what is your path? Everybody has their like pet issue. How on earth did the the postal service become your number one target? I'm I'm interested to know what it was that drove you to this topic um, over some of the other topics that are out there that are maybe a little sexier. Oh man, postal service is perfectly sexy. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't like that eagle? I mean, come on. Um, I actually love the logo. I mean, that was part of it. I mean, like early on, I always wanted postal apparel, but I only got swag like a year ago or something like that. Um, but in all seriousness, you have a lot of federal agencies, right? Alphabet super federal agencies dealing with virtually every matter under the sun that you can imagine. But really of all these federal agencies, the Postal Service directly impacts and directly interacts with hundreds of millions of households each and every day in one form or another. Um, so in a lot of ways, they are a face, an active face of the federal government, and yet they have some of the, the deepest structural uh, problems of any federal agency there is. Uh, so such an important agency failing so spectacularly um, is something that really caught my attention early on. Yeah, and uh, for those of you who are just listening to the radio, you didn't see that Ross brandished his his tattoo of USPS also in video. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> on my forehead. There you go. It's right on the top. Um, so yeah, we're speaking with Ross uh, Marchand, who's from the uh, Taxpayers Protection Alliance, a great friend of ours. And uh, I wanted to talk about some of your other work. You know, you, you're, you're very passionate about uh, postal reform, but you also write a lot of other topics with Young Voices as well. And, you know, you're very present on, on media, TV, radio. You know, what are some of the other things that you're working on that might be pertinent to uh, what's happening now? Well, especially when we're coming up on the general election, something that's going to get a lot of play is healthcare reform. And you have Democrats primarily talking about Medicare for all and this idea that private insurance just isn't working out, which is curious because the vast majority of Americans, something like four out of five Americans, are satisfied with their current insurance offerings and the health care that they receive from their doctors. Um, and I really do wonder why there's such a serious movement to undermine that, a system that clearly works for the vast majority of Americans, all in the name of expanding affordability, which does the government ever bolster affordability? No, absolutely not. So we've been paying very close attention to those sorts of issues. Awesome, cool. Yeah, I think cool. the, 
the best description I've heard so far to describe that proposed plan of Medicare for all is it's not Medicare for all. It's more like the VA for all. Uh, and then immediately everyone's like, Ooh, okay. Uh, well, we know how bad, we know how bad the VA is. So maybe we need to hold off on this and let's not go that route. Yeah. And I think now there's, it's the critical time to think, you know, to talk about the role of the federal government. You had the entire debate among a lot of activists on the West coast, you know, everything happening with the federal agents uh, sent in to guard the federal buildings and uh, what's happening with the police. You know, you'd think there'd be a lot of skepticism of these larger bureaucratic institutions, but it seems as if people are clinging to them, you know, as if they're, again, romanticizing and uh, putting these onto display and something that we should all be proud of, because no matter what, we all can go to the post office. Uh, we can. We absolutely can. I will continue to go to the post office and buy stamps and maybe even money orders and, of course, apparel. I wish I had a gift shop in even 1% of post offices, but alas, they do not. Yeah, well, you know, if that were the case and they changed some things, we'd, we'd love to send you a bottle of whiskey, but unfortunately we can't, so we have to do it digitally uh, or use FedEx or something. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we've been speaking with uh, Ross Marchand, who is a senior contributor to Young Voices and vice president of policy for the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. You can follow him on Twitter at Ross A. Marchand. Uh, Ross, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks. Great to be on your show. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, what a strange time getting to talk about the post office. We didn't even really get to talk about the DNC. We're going to have to devote some time to that. Um, all the speeches or, or non-speeches or speechifying is, is how, I was, uh, how it was referred to me. Um, so much more to chat, but we're unfortunately rounding out the hour. Uh, so we'll have to postpone some of those conversations until next week. Uh, Yael, as always, it was a pleasure uh, to join you here on the radio. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you're listening online, uh, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast. If you're listening on the radio, we'll see you next week. And we'll talk to you then. Goodbye. Shit, tired of getting shot at, tired of getting chased by the police and arrested. Niggas need a spot where we can kick it, a spot where we belong that's just for us. Niggas ain't got to get all dressed up and be Hollywood. You know what I mean? Where do niggas go when we die? Ain't no heaven for a thug, nigga. That's why we go to Thug Mansion. That's the only place where thugs get in free and you got to be G. <laughs> At Thug Mansion. A place to spend my quiet nights. Time to unwind. So much pressure in this life of mine. I cried times I once contemplated suicide. And would have tried, but when I held that now, all I could see was my mama's eyes. No one knows my struggle. They only see the trouble. Not knowing it's hard to carry on when no one loves you. Picture me inside the misery of poverty. No man alive has ever witnessed struggles I survived. Praying hard for better days. Promise to hold on. Me and my dogs ain't have a choice but to roll on. We found a finally spot to kick it. Where we could drink liquor and know what bickers over trick shit. A spot where we can smoke in peace. And even though we G's, we still visualize places that we can roll in peace. And in my mind's eye, I see this place. The players going fast. I got a spot for us all so we can ball at Thug's Bob.
all the fights in the darkness, trouble sparks. They tell me home is where the heart is, dear departed. I shed tattoo tears and couldn't sleep good for multiple years. Witness peers, cats, gunshots, nobody cares. Seen the politicians' banners, they'd rather see us locked in chains. Please explain why they can't stand us. Is there a way for me to change? Or am I just a victim of things I did to maintain? I need a place to rest my head with a little bit of homeboys that remain. Cause all the rest there. Is there a spot for us to roll? If you find it, I'll be right behind you. Show me and I'll go. How can I be peaceful? I'm coming from the bottom. Watch my daddy scream peace while the other man shot him. I need a house that's full of love when I need to escape the deadly place of slaying drugs and thugs, man. I'm